Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Scott Sherman, founding principal of Toros Equities. It was an amazing conversation. Scott's a good friend. We talked everything about how he started in real estate, how he worked from an institutional firm to founding his own firm, focusing on retail and commercial buildings. We discussed all the opportunities in South Florida, Central Florida, what he's thinking about, how he's placemaking, how he's combining unique tenants with what the consumer wants. It was a really interesting conversation. Please enjoy my conversation today with Scott Sherman. Scott, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I thought a good place to start would just be for you to tell everyone, the audience, how you got your start in real estate and why you even picked real estate as a career, as your life's work? All right. That's always, that's always a fun question. You know, I don't come from a real estate family or background. I grew up actually not far from here. I grew up in Plantation, Florida. So born and raised down here. Although my parents are, my dad's from Newark, New Jersey. My mom's from Long Island. So I've got the New York and New Jersey blood in me. And a little bit um, of an accent, by the way. Yeah. Well, you know, I was raised by New Yorkers. I lived in the city, which I'll get to for, you know, over a decade. So I think it just came out. But yeah, everyone thinks I'm a New Yorker, but I actually was born and raised down here. And so, yeah, I grew up down here, went to University of Florida for college, actually studied accounting, not real estate, but was always, to me, real estate, I was always a numbers and kind of wanted to be in business. And I was like, well, that's very broad. Real estate always appealed to me just because it's, you know, the easy answer, but it's just tangible. I'd always see buildings and I was always fascinated with how people actually could like just develop something or create an activation, you know, a retail shop or whatever it would be, it was always interesting. And so to me, that was always kind of speaking to me on the business side. And so even when I was in the accounting program at UF, I would take electives instead of taking tennis or whatever, I would take, I, I actually got special permission to take uh, real estate classes from the business school. So I, I always had that that kind of interest even from from my early days. And then when I graduated college, I went up to New York and I actually started my career at Ernst Young in the real estate group. So I found a specific real estate group that I thought was really interesting and and ended up getting a, a job offer. So I started my career up there doing that for a couple of years. Obviously, it was a great foundation and background to have, but wasn't the most glorious work. So I was itching to get more into the you know investment side. I ended up going to work for a family office called Becker Brothers after a couple of years at Ernst Young. Where I, you know, I really it was a small, you know, four guys really got to see and touch and do a lot from the underwriting to the property management to uh, you know just really understanding how a whole deal kind of gets put together from start to finish. And so it gave me some great kind of training and exposure. And then from there, I guess this was two thousand nine, two thousand ten. 
as the, you know, the, the real estate downturn happened, I ended up getting an opportunity to go over and work for Thor Equities in New York, where I, I uh, joined the acquisitions team and you know spent almost seven years working there, really building out a lot of their new market portfolios, built out their Florida portfolio, Lincoln Road, Wynwood Design District. Obviously, having come from here, I had kind of a, a good angle there, but I was also doing deals in London and France and Canada. So it was a really, it was a great experience. And uh, obviously working for Joe was uh He's a, he's a visionary and has really uh, learned a lot there. So, did that, and then 2015, it was time to you know I felt it was time to come back to Florida. My wife, who I met in college, we've been together a long time. She's actually from Miami as well. So, after we had our first kid in New York, kind of was a catalyst and said, "Hey, let's move back to Miami." We came back, and then that's when I launched my uh, my first company, Tricera Capital, which we then built a portfolio really throughout Florida, and then did one deal in Nashville. In Memphis with a partner, but mostly Florida, value add retail and office, and did that for a while. And then last year ended up, you know, splitting with my partner and launched a new company called Taurus Equities, which I'm now building out. Amazing. We're gonna talk about it all. <laughs> all right. What on the accounting side, what certain insights did you glean like starting with that background and then coming into real estate? Did that give you a certain edge? or mindset that some of the other peers that you had in real estate maybe didn't have? I, I think it's a great background to have for anything fundamentally in the business world, real estate included. I mean, having a good understanding of, you know, an income statement, balance sheets, you know, cash flows, all these things that that are applicable, it, it really helps. And so I do think it gave me a little bit of a different perspective. Also, you know, accounting in general is a little bit more of a conservative mindset. So I think it also you know, I, I think about things a little bit more from that side too. And so, you know, I, I kind of don't tell people I'm, I'm a CPA. It's not on any of my my email signatures or anything. And so people don't know. And it's funny because I think people, when you tell someone you're a CPA, they're kind of like, you're a CPA? Like, I don't know, they have like a, in their mind, like some vision of what a CPA should be. Yep. And I guess I don't fit that. So it's pretty funny, but I'll, I, I usually keep it in my back pocket. And then when uh, I'm on calls with potential tenants and I start picking apart their financials and they're like, no, that's not how you're reading it wrong. You got to read this. I'm like, guys, I'm a CPA. Don't tell me how to read a financial statement. And then they quickly back off and it's pretty funny. So I kind of keep it, keep it to myself. <laughs> when you're looking at a tenant financials, do you think a lot of some of your competitors take the approach that like, hey, I got the financials. I just look at the NOI line and that's it. Or is it very common in retail and commercial to pick apart their financials in a very detailed way? Look, I think I think it is important. I think a lot of people probably glance over them or, or like you said, maybe they just don't really know what to look for, right? And so I think having a little bit more understanding of what you're looking at allows you to kind of pick through it even quickly and kind of see, oh, well, that's a red flag, that's a red flag, or let me ask questions around these things and make sure we understand what we're looking at. What are some of the common things that you look for? Well, you know, one is obviously, you know, total assets looks great when you look at a balance sheet or cash. Cash is a big one, right? If you have a lot of cash, that's obviously a good thing. But when you look at total assets, I think it's a little misleading. What are the liabilities, right? So you got to look at the liabilities and then what are your short-term liabilities versus your long-term? And these are things, again, I'm, I might be boring people who are listening to this, but these are the things that I don't think a lot of people really think about. But I mean, short-term liabilities are really, the you know, that's a going concern, right? If they've got, you know, $10 million of cash and they got $100 million of short-term liabilities maturing in the next two years, how are they going to replace that? I mean, these are the things that you got to think about because even though they might look like they've got $50 million of assets in their balance sheet, well, that doesn't mean anything. So 
just that's one example, but there's definitely things like that you got to be aware of or look for. And what have you also learned taking you out of the CPA mindset to look for in tenant financial statements or maybe just in tenants in general that might be new or emerging? Because in a lot of the stuff you do with placemaking, you don't always have a very high credit tenant. Yeah. Well, that's so, you know, what I say now, especially because I'm in retail and I'm always looking at new concepts and brands is, a lot of times now you're, you're you're betting on the operator as much as you are, you know, on on the fun, the financials or things like that. And so, right, if you think it's a good concept, and yeah, maybe they're in growth mode and they only have one location or three locations, but yeah, you're, you're you you have to make sure you you're betting on the right operator too, and understanding how those how their other stores are performing. But also, you know, there's a little bit of risk reward there, I guess. But yeah, obviously, the trade off though is when you go for the you're looking for the best credit, and what is credit? I mean. You know what you thought was credit five years ago isn't even credit today. So who knows? But when you go for those credit tenants, the Starbucks of the world, they're going to also negotiate a much tougher deal for you. So as a landlord, you know you'll probably get a little bit more protection and things in the lease that you probably won't get with a Starbucks that you could get with that new startup coffee concept. But with like the tech type companies and stuff like that, I think I struggle because as a with that accounting background, I look at the fundamentals of you know income statement. I ne- I've always struggled on a personal level investing in tech companies because they're all just hemorrhaging money. They're losing tons and tons of cash. I mean, look, WeWork's probably a bad example, but <laughs> point is, it's like all these people are like, yeah, you should invest in this company's worth a hundred million. I'm like, it's losing fifty million dollars a week. Like, what do you, what do you, you know? Right. And right. you know what? I've been wrong a lot of those times because some of those companies have turned into you know the unicorns of the world. But I've always struggled fundamentally investing in those types of companies because it doesn't make sense to me. So then, why did you choose to focus on? primarily, I'm going to say retail, but you also do a lot of office. What about retail was so interesting to you? You know, I, I think it started with when I was at Thor. We did a lot of high street. I just, and, and it's funny, my wife's also, she well, she's now a full-time mom, but she was a lady shoe buyer for Bloomingdale's in New York. So she oh, wow. was in the retail world yep. too. She had an awesome job. And so I just, to me, that the, the experience of the retail going in, I, I I get to think about it not only from an economic standpoint, but as a consumer, is this something I like? Curating the brands within a project, I don't know. I just find it very exciting, and so to me, it's just I think you have to find what you like, but also where you think you can make money. But you know, if, if you enjoy it and kind of have an edge or an angle, it, it works. Thor is unique in that it's I don't know how it's an institutional firm, but it doesn't have funds, right? It pretty much raises capital from maybe one-off institutions or high net worth individuals, but they've grew to this international footprint. What about working internationally did you learn? I mean, it was it was an experience. And 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 so, you know, Joe said who's who's runs Thor, I mean, he he's a visionary and 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 what's really I think special about Joe is he also knows how to kind of maneuver like he he you know skates where the opportunities are and so you know he might you know for a while he was focused only on high street retail but if you look at thor now right he's i wouldn't say he's pivoted totally away but he's now very big in industrial and life sciences and other asset types where he saw things happening and he was early to kind of jumping into those other other opportunities and so you know to his credit he's done that also when i joined thor they actually had a fund so now you're right joe does it deal by deal but thor actually had two funds Earlier on, in you know previously, but yeah, now he's doing a deal by deal. But he 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 skates to the opportunities, and that's something that I've always thought about too. Which is people always ask me like why I haven't raised the fund, 
And one of the reasons is because I like to be nimble and, and maneuver. And when you have a fund, a lot of times you're put in a box to only focus on this type of return, this type of deal, and, and then you're kind of stuck. But you have discretionary capital, which is nice if you have a fund. Yes. There, there's the, look, there's always the, you know, the grass is always greener and I, I struggle with that all the time. But yeah. And then going back to your question about the international side, it was a hell of a learning experience. I mean, I remember my first day at Thor, my first day at the job, the guy I was working under at the time calls me in his office and says, all right, I want you to work on this deal. Okay. What is it? It was a property in London. Okay. It was the Burlington Arcade, which we then yep. acquired and has actually since sold. I don't know the, you know, my first day in this new company, I'm, I'm already intimidated. And now I get thrown into a project in London, a market I have nothing, you know, no idea. Everything's in square meters and pounds. And I'm like relearning everything I thought I knew, plus the the legal laws, the, the tenant laws, the the contract laws are all different. So it was it was a great experience. I mean, really what you gotta do is you have to surround yourself with the right team in whatever market you're in. So you gotta find the right tax team, the right legal team. To advise you, the right local brokers team to maybe help you with some market information, and so it's really what you what you figure out is you're you're kind of the coach putting a team together in this new country and, and trying to get as smart as you can as quickly as you can, and you know hope you don't make mistakes along the way. So as you were founding your first company and starting to go off on your own, how did you think about working in other markets, or did you just want to maybe focus on one market to start and then expand out? Because what you did at Thor was very much all over the country, all over the world. Right. So look, I love exploring new markets and, and, and I find it exciting. But yes, I think early on and even today, I think you need to be disciplined. And especially, look, I'm still, again, in infancy of my new company. You know, I'm still trying to stay pretty focused. I think we're very fortunate to be based in Miami and Florida. I think I think of, of all the states you could be investing in, Florida is probably one of the, the best places to to invest today. So we're, we're fortunate. This is our backyard. So why stretch geographically further when you don't have to, if there's things within reach that you can go after? So I, I've been trying to stay disciplined and kind of stay within the Florida markets. But you know, every now and then we see something that's, that's really interesting. We did a deal earlier this year in Atlanta. So you know, if the opportunity comes, I'll look at it. But definitely think that you know, having some discipline is important right now. What was the most important thing you learned from Joe at Thor? Ooh, that's a that's a tough one. I mean, I would just I think what he taught me is and, and you know, you gotta have balls. I mean, he's got he he's taken more risk than I've seen most real estate investors take. Going hard on deals, you know, with very, you know, very quickly on on, on big deal, like with his own, you know, putting his own checkbook on the line, big dollars, you know, things that a lot of people, you know, they wouldn't have the appetite or be able to sleep at night. And and, and it's it was pretty impressive because that that was, I think, what gave me the the firepower to actually tie up deals and get deals done because I, I I knew I had a principal at the time that was willing to take those risks with me, and he trusted me. So, uh, you know, obviously, I'm I'm trying to take uh, smaller risks than him right now, where I am in my life. But it was definitely good to kind of see how how he operated, and I think that was a great learning experience. So now, how do you think about risk and reward in investing? You know, it, it's I think that I think that's always the question, right? Like, what is the re return that justifies the risk you're taking in a specific deal, right? I mean, obviously you can go buy core profile deals, which are going to you know, be a much lower return than the opportunistic or value add or even the development, right? And so it's kind of, I think, where your appetite lies, but also it, it depends on your capital, your equity and, and what they're looking for. And so I think we've kind of found a sweet spot in that value add space. My appetite for ground up development is actually pretty low. I, I actually find the opportunity right now, and especially, especially in retail and office, 
you could buy existing for in a lot of markets below replacement cost. There's some in place cash flow, so there's, I think the downside feels a little better, and it's really more of a repositioning lease up play. And so to me, that kind of feels if we can get especially in today's environment, 20 plus percent returns under that profile without taking full construction risk. It feels like a good a good environment, but again, that could change. I mean, you know, we kind of look at where where the the right opportunities lie and and some of these deals we bought that are existing cash flow deals which we could talk about, you know, I think long term there's probably a development play behind it. So, uh, you never know. You bring up an interesting point and I wonder if a lot of young firms like yours and mine would be even able to attract investor capital if we were doing core deals. I don't I don't know that we would. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of core deals, you know, in the last 5 whatever plus years that I was like this is good real estate. I know I'd love to just be happy owning this long term and you're not going to get hurt, but I was like what do you, how do you make money, right? Like what, you know, yeah, you got to find the right core, but then you really you're in it for the fees, I guess, because you know, if you're doing value add deals where you're really making your money on the back with your investors on the promotes, which is how we, we typically structure our deals, there's really not going to be much promote on the back end of a core deal unless you somehow turn a core deal into a, an opportunistic home run, which, you know, that's not easy or really readily available. So I agree with you. I don't know. It's tough. It's tough for guys like us to be focused on core deals in this, in this kind of environment. Yeah. Unless you found a capital partner that was willing to incentivize you almost like with the promote crystallization from the beginning or basically giving you sweat equity but then I guess it's like to do what, you know, just lease like high street retail, which, you know, you could just pay a broker to do that. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think it's a, I think you've hit it on, on the head. I mean, it's not to me, it's again, if, if I had, if I was looking at investing on my own account and just tucking some money away in some good stuff, I think that's where like the core buys could make sense. But you know, if you're building your company, I don't know if that's really the, the foundation to build it on. You're starting a new company, you're raising capital. Yeah. What are you telling investors your competitive edge is? I think our competitive edge is one. I think it's really first unlocking and finding the opportunities. I think that's the hardest part, right? It's finding the deal. And a lot of times it's creating it, structuring it the right way, or just you know knowing where to look and, and, and focus. So I think bringing the right deals to the tables is first, but then the second part to that is execution. If you don't execute, then you're not making money. So you know we pride ourselves on being very hands-on. We're not you know just... With institutions, and I've seen this a lot as a buyer and from being in that world, you know, they buy an asset, they've got an asset manager that sits somewhere, probably goes and visits that asset once a year. You know, they rely on a local broker who's whether you know, you're you're as good as they are at the end of the yep. day. And they send a term sheet up and the asset manager sits on it for two weeks before they turn it back. You know, it's just we we want to turn something in twenty four hours. We wanna, you know, we find that we also are very hands-on, so we're out there finding tenants. We're not just relying on brokers. We're we're out there working our relationships, and so I just think that it's 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 the aggressive kind of hands-on approach that I, I think would separate the better operators from kind of the more you know hands-off and and passive operators. As you think about retail and how you're positioning your investments, what are the most important retail trends that you think will shape retail? Real estate and commercial investing over the next ten years. I wish I could uh, have a crystal ball. I'd say, look, looking back ten years now, let's go back ten before we go forward ten. I mean, I was buying retail ten years ago when everyone thought retail was dying. The internet was taking over, and and you know, retail was a scary word, right? I think now retail is actually a, a favorable asset class, and office is a scary word, which is what I'm actually focused on right now. You know, I like to be a little contrarian, but but. 
I never believed retail was going away. I think that there probably was too much retail, especially some of those C and B regional malls in the middle of nowhere. And a lot of those have gone away. But if you look at all the good retail and the good markets, it's it's stronger than ever. And and so yeah, some some tenants maybe, you know, shrunk down their footprints. Like I think a good example is Barnes and Noble. I mean, people thought bookstores were done. Amazon ate their lunch, right? Barnes and Noble hung around, hung around, borders gone. And now Barnes and Noble is making a, a big growth push. They've changed their format. They're not doing 40, 50,000 square foot mega stores. They're doing 20,000 square foot, 15,000 square foot stores, more curated. Um, I actually read an article the other day about the new CEO. I don't know if you saw it. Yeah. You your head, so I think you read yeah. it. It was super fascinating. He, he's really relying on the local managers to really curate the books based on their customer base and clientele and really take more of a hands-on approach. And versus just like, you know, the publishers pushing yep. down whatever they want to feed, right? And I just think that, that that brings back that local bookstore feel and people want to go in and hang out and see what's going on. And so I, I think that's a good example of how retail is just going to continue to evolve. And so, yes, you're going to always have the online thing. But what you're also seeing now, which people didn't talk about 10 years ago, is all those online guys are now looking for brick and mortar stores because they realize that they actually want to have that interaction with their customers and touch them. So you're, you're seeing a little bit of the inverse happening. And so I think the one trend that will continue is you're probably going to see like larger format stores probably shift down and try to fit into smaller spaces so they carry less inventory and maybe then have more of a, a supply chain online kind of logistically. I think that'll probably be something to continue, but I don't think retail's going anywhere. I think it's going to continue to be a, you know, a, a good asset class and obviously food and beverage and entertainment and things like that are, are always going to be needed because you can't do that online, you know? So there's always those things. All right, Mr. Contrarian. So what are you doing with office then right now? Where is What is important over the next five, 10 years from an office standpoint, if you're going to be investing in office today? Well, I think first you need to be buying the right office product in the right markets. But I think that office is such a dirty word right now. No one wants to touch it. Institutions are hands off. Banks are pretty much hands off. So it's very tough to buy offices because you can't. it's hard to capitalize. If you're relying on institutional capital and banks, you know, good luck. And, and to be honest, I've you know, we've now acquired my new company since I launched a little over a year ago, about a million square feet of office. Really? Yeah. And so it's not easy. It's very hard, but we're, we figure it out. We're resourceful. But I think if you're, I think because everyone's staying away from it, there's real value right now for the right stuff. You just have to make sure you're buying the right products in the right markets. And I think you're going to, you know, I think it'll outperform over the next five years. So to me, again, Florida is big, a big thesis there. I mean, I'm, Palm Beach to Miami feels really good. I also like the West Coast of Florida. We just bought an office building in Tampa recently. So I think there's still is good office. And I think that the value and the basis that we're buying now is is incredible, but you got to get a finance and you got to get the cap, the equity. So it's not easy, but if you can get it done, I think that the, you know, the seas have kind of parted right now. And look, I'm a, I've, I've been saying this, I was buying office buildings in 2020 during COVID. So I always believe that people are going to go back to the office. I was you know, I, I would say I led by example. I was in the office basically, you know, a month after the world shut down. I yep. just, one, I don't like to work from home and I got little kids, but I just, I think that the, the collegial experience of being in the office, the, the way that works, you can't replace that online. And yes, there are some jobs that maybe it's fine, but I think for the majority of companies and they're, they're all realizing it now because you're seeing every day, another company is dictating back to the office. Even Zoom just had an announcement that they yep. want their people back to the office, which I thought was kind of ironic. So it's it's really happening. Whether or not it's going to be a five-day work week in the office or a four-day, or maybe some companies are even flexing to a three, that's fine. But they're still going to need office space. And so it's not all going away. And I think that that's, that's something that people 
have been saying for so long and just don't understand. I think, look, a lot of companies are still figuring out what their space needs are, but I think a lot of companies now are realizing that they need either the same amount of space or close to it. Because if you have everyone there four days a week, you still need the, the space for them. So I think all, you know people have overreacted and it tends to happen in a lot of, lot of cases. And so, I mean, we'll see, time will tell, but I, I definitely, we're seeing it just in our properties we own, right? A lot of a lot of tenants are actually looking to expand, not contract right now. I mean, some law firms, tenants like that, service-oriented firms, they're actually growing. So it's not all just downsizing and going remote and things like that. What's going to be the big pivot though? Because like with retail, in your example, when everyone was saying retail is dead, what happened was, I think, some retailers actually died and others kind of pivoted and maybe amped up their stores or did some experiential or design or collaborative component. And actually now I think hotels are drawing inspiration from certain retail environments. Is there going to be a similar inflection point on office? Yes, I think I think there is. I mean, you know, what everyone's talking about now is well, to get your employees to come back to the office, you want to make sure you're creating an environment that they want to be in, right? And so that's where I think when you 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 go when you look at a lot of the suburban class C B kind of commodity office that all looks the same, and you walk into these buildings and just your energy gets sucked out of you. You know, yeah. just you feel depressing walking to yep. the lobby. That stuff kills me, and that's not what we're buying. And and I think that's a dangerous game right now because. There are going to be a lot of tenants leaving those those types of buildings and looking for buildings that are either more in the urban core where there's a surrounding amenities that make the tenants or the employees more you know wanting to be in in the office and also then just the existing buildings themselves you know the people take flight to quality whether it's a new building or renovated building with good amenities I think that stuff is going to be more important and so I think you will see kind of like the C and B malls that that all kind of died in the in the retail world. I think you're going to see a lot of that happen with some office, but I think the good office and the good locations is going to come back and it's going to be just fine. And I think you're going to see more tenants kind of leaving the other stuff and coming into the the, the product that is more desirable and more of a an environment that makes your employees want to come back to the office. One strategy we've looked at, but never done anything with, because we're not office people, I need to like do it with you, I guess, is trying to figure out how to integrate hospitality into office. So maybe you have an office building, you don't need all the space. Some of it becomes a hotel. You now have an amazing bar and gym that's fully staffed. And then you can have a little bit of will we work type of thing, a little bit of a traditional office, but you basically have the amenities and services of a hotel and you're taking a class A office to a whole nother level. I think that's a great idea. I mean, I, I let's figure it out. I mean, I think that that's exactly where, you know, office should go. I mean, if you could create that environment, your office is going to lease up and you'll probably get a premium rent because that is the type of environment that these these employers want because they can attract and retain talent. And so when you started saying that, you know, the first thing that popped my head is to go, it, it already kind of exists in that I feel like that's what the co-working guys were trying to do, right? Creating this flexible work arrangement that's more of a hospitality vibe. When we work started, you know, originally I had like beer on tap in the lobby, yeah, you know, yeah. all that stuff. So, right. So it was kind of like this cool, unique, different experience. But I think having that hotel lobby bar or something that you kind of tie into the office building and and just create more kind of places to, you know, congregate, hang out and, and kind of just feel more alive, I guess, is is definitely valuable. And I, I think it's a I think it's a great idea. Yeah, we should try and figure it out. It'd be fun. <laughs> All right. So I want to know from you, because this is not an asset class that I invest in, but what are some of the pros and cons of retail and commercial investing? 
I mean, I think the pros versus, I guess when you say the pros and cons versus hotels or versus anything, because you're competing for capital against hotel guys, apartment guys. I think the pros are right. When you sign retail and office lease, for the most part, you're getting, you you have longer term leases, five years, 10 years with hotels. You have nightly leases, right? Yeah. Residential, it's annual leases. So you you have a little bit more kind of stickiness as far as the tenants go, which could be good or bad depending on what the way the market's moving. I say one of the cons, especially, I guess we're both asset classes, but especially in offices, it's very capital intensive because every time a space, a space rolls or you have a vacancy, you got to put a lot of tenant allowance money, which is getting a lot more expensive with construction costs today. So that's always hitting your cash flow. So that's that's probably the biggest challenge and, and negative, I'd say, to investing in office. And retail too, you know, the good operators now, good F&B restaurant operators, I mean, the tenant pa- improvement packages that they're asking for, and they're asking for it because they know they can get it from someone, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they're willing to compromise. I mean- it's big. I mean, we're seeing three hundred dollars plus a foot. You know, tenant allowance really? like asks from from operators. Now, we're not giving that, but that's out there, and 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 they're getting it in in certain instances. So, you know, a lot of times you're, yeah, going back to office, right? I think because of my retail background, I I think about office buildings a little differently. I really think about them from the ground up. How do you create the ground floor? Is really the first experience you have with an office building. It's your first point of contact. So, to me, how do you create energy in life? into that ground floor experience. Because I think if you do that right, that makes that office building that much more desirable when you lease it. People want to be in the building go up. So it kind of goes back to what you're saying about the hospitality idea. I mean, we always think about, well, how can we create more life, breathe more life into the bottom of the buildings? And that's something we love to do and gets us excited. I want to talk about placemaking now because something you know how to do, you can do. And maybe you can start off by explaining what is placemaking and then how do you figure it out in the context of business? Because maybe in a placemaking situation, you are going to give that restaurant tenant 300 bucks a foot because you're getting Apple above in the office. Talk to me about placemaking. Yeah. I I mean, (laughs) you know, what is placemaking? I don't don't even know what how you define it, right? But I you just got to cre- go and right. see it. You got to just, you're creating an environment where people want to go and hang out and, and and do whatever it could be, whether it's office use, residential, mixed use type things. Like like Wynwood's a good example, right? Of a neighborhood that I love and I've been investing in for a long time. When you have a big space that you're trying to place make, I think you're right. Then you have to look at, well, what what do we want to curate and bring in there? It's kind of like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. And and yes, there are going to be maybe that one, those one or two restaurant or cool concept brands that you know, like an Apple store, that are really going to bring traffic and energy to the center. And those deals are probably going to be painful. But if you're trying to, if you have enough space where you you know scale where you can afford to take that kind of loss leader or whatever you want to call it, put in that those those kind of anchors. And then you curate around it. And that's where you find the smaller guys and you bring them in, the cool coffee concepts and the other emerging chefs or or dry goods, you know, clothing store. So I think it is just it's like a jigsaw puzzle you put together and 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 I think that's what's fun, but it's also challenging because you got so many pieces. We're actually partners on a uh, a ground up lifestyle center right now in Bonita Springs, just north of Naples. And we're doing a two hundred thousand square foot retail lifestyle center. And we're actually trying to put that jigsaw puzzle together right now. And you know. We're, we're like, okay, well, we want to get like a grocery anchor, but we also want something else. Is it a gym? Is it, we're talking to like a big healthcare concept right now. That could be a great anchor. You know, it's not sexy, but you know, they bring a lot of traffic to a center. So, you know, like a, you know, 40,000 square foot medical use, yep. you know, it also complements kind of from a daytime versus nighttime usage of the parking. So, you know, they're heavy during the day, but then at night, all those spaces will free up for the restaurants, which are heavy at night. So, 
there's always all these different dynamics in play that you got to think about. Is there like a formula that you start with the cool ones first that aren't going to pay any rent and then you worry about some of the anchors or is it the other way around where you got to get the anchors and then you fill in the cool ones? It's it's tough. I wish there was a perfect formula, but I'd say, honestly, the anchors are the key because they're going to also dictate a lot of things. And so, you know, especially if it's, it's existing, it might be different because they have specific spaces, but on a ground up, they may want to rejigger the plan or change this and maneuver certain things or have certain exclusives. So you, you really have to kind of figure that out first so that you know what you can kind of layer in around them. So it, I'd say the anchors are usually key, but look, can you do it the other way? I'm sure you could. And look, if we have like in this project in Bonita, we're kind of have two anchors that we're kind of targeting that we have on a, on a site plan that's obviously evolving. I'd say, you know, if we had one good anchor locked in and we already have so much demand from all the kind of inline, smaller and out parcels, but we've been kind of reluctant to sign a lot of them until we know the anchors. So, you know, would we do one anchor and maybe then wait on the other? It's possible. So it just depends on the deal and kind of how you're, how you're playing it out. When you're thinking about the most amazing office or retail placemaking exercise where it's like in your mind and you're trying to figure out how you recreate that in your market, which project jumps out? Ooh, I mean, there's a lot. You know, one great mixed use project that I I was pretty um, blown away with is actually just outside of Boston. It's called Assembly Row and it was done by Federal. And I went up there one time, we were on a road trip with my family and we just stopped over there. And, you know, they had all these apartments and office built up, but on the ground floor, there was some different, you know, all different restaurants. They had a Legoland. So we went with the day, our kids went there, went to the ice cream shop. And it was just this great sense of space, indoor, outdoor kind of walk through. So that one was was definitely um, a newer kind of ground up mixed use project that I thought was really, really well done. You know, another one that's, it's a different type of placemaking, but I think really cool again. And I mean, just the traffic is, is mind blowing is Pond City Market in Atlanta. Yep, That one's always, you know, old buildings that you can kind of reimagine. That was an old million square foot or maybe bigger Sears, old Sears building, right? And, and and the way they breathe new life into that whole thing from the ground up is, you know, even to the roof. I mean, they've got a carnival on the roof with like rides and, you know, games. It's crazy. And so, you know, I love that kind of stuff. And just kind of thinking about, you know, every space in the building, how you can make it special. How do you think about doing it in kind of where you are, Palm Beach, Broward, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, where so much about placemaking is kind of leveraging off an old building where you get this vibe right away. And there aren't a lot of old buildings here. And the old buildings that do exist are oftentimes in an area that's not walkable or far away from where the population is. I remember we were looking at a deal in Nashville. And we were kind of like around Vanderbilt. And there was this like little street that just it was like every direct to consumer brand just like, you know, popped onto the street and that was the whole thing. And I was like, God, how did they like do this? How do they assemble it? This is such a random area, but it's like close to a college spot. Was that 12 South or where, what's, yeah, your, there's like a double yeah. RL. It's probably, you probably yeah. know it. It's right yeah. there. And yeah. I was like, how did they do this? Like the buildings are great, but like kind of felt like in the middle of nowhere. And why can't we do this in Florida? You know, it, it, the, it, what's tough with that, and, and sometimes it just happens, you know, one retail pioneer who's willing to make that back goes to an area and then the other guys see it and they're like, I want to go. And it just, the, the pieces fall in place unintentionally. What, where it's, why it's challenging in urban environments, especially like down here is to control a whole block, 
it's 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 hard to kind of aggregate and assemble and scale, right? You gotta because usually you've got twenty different owners on that block or maybe more. So you know, it's hard to change a, a street like that quickly because unless you just can buy everything at once, you gotta kind of take the pieces down. Because if you buy one three thousand square foot space on a street and you put a cool tenant in, you're not you know you can't effectuate the change the way, and you're not going to benefit from that change either. So it's it's definitely not easy. But I think if you can find a block or an area, and this is what I like to do is, is and try to aggregate, try to see if I can find five or six or 10 buildings I can pick off low hanging fruit from older owners who just want to cash out. Then you can start to create that change and curate and, and bring tenants in. But well, first you got to find the right area and two, you got to then sell and convince the retailers that they want to be there and they're going to make money because right, who's going to be the first one. Yep. And, and a lot of times the they're like, I don't want to be the first guy to go there. So it's not easy. What do you look for in terms of like walkability or demographics or being near something to determine if this new merging area is actually going to pop? You look for for retail, you know, walkability to me is really what I like. I'm not really the the grocery anchored shopping center guy like, you know, where you just drive to it. That's that, you know, that's a different animal than from like kind of that urban street retail to me. For the urban stuff, what I'm looking for is really what's the development pipeline look like for residential. I want to see how many bodies are going to be around here, residential and office, really. I'd say. So, to me, what like let's talk about St. Pete for a second, where you and I both yep. are, are active. You know, we started buying there probably 2017. Okay, so I guess six years ago. Early, right? And I remember went there, and it was there was just Central Avenue, one street, obviously all different owners, all the whole way, but it just it had this spine through this downtown. I could just there, there was a cool vibe to the to the area. It was all mom and pops and like local kind of operators along the street, but there was no vacancies, and it was mind blowing because you kind of go down the street and you like there's some interesting tenants, but there's yeah. also like a lot of things missing from a retail perspective. Yeah. And it was all mom and pop owners. They've owned these things forever. And so no one was really pushing anything. But when I, every time I go back there, I noticed that there was hundreds, if not thousands of units in the development pipeline all around the street. And you had real guys like the, the Bainbridge of the world and you know the related of the world. And so they were all starting to build there. I'm like, well, thousands of units are coming on. It's only going to make this retail more desirable. But none of these owners that really, most of the owners on the street, as they thought, none of them, because there are probably a few, they didn't want to put money in. So, so if you're going to go try to attract the better operators, the better tenants, they want to go in, into buildings where landlords, one, are sophisticated enough to negotiate these types of leases, not like a two-page piece of paper. And also they want someone that's going to invest capital, give them TI, but also invest and upgrade the buildings. So you know, we found that really on. We bought our first building. It was you know, The awning was falling down. I was kind of like afraid to walk under it. There was a, a biker bar in there that was dangerous <laughs> and was not paying rent. So like we actually had the prior owner vacate that space right before we closed. Smart. But the St. Pete, like one of the reasons why I love it, but also one of the challenges is the, the, the locals are very passionate about St. Pete, which is great. It just shows there's a lot of pride there. Well, there was a lot of passionate people that used to go to this biker bar and they thought the new owner came in, kicked them out. And like, that was basically what everyone thought. We we were getting death threats like the day after we closed really? on the first building in St. Pete. Yeah. Because we like got rid of this dive, this biker bar. So like that was our welcome to St. Pete moment. And we're like, <laughs> holy shit, you know? But we since then upgraded the building, replaced the awning, did the whole facade and put new tenants in. And, and what went from, I think, one of the scariest blocks in downtown where like you would go to the other side of the street, you don't really want to walk yeah. past it. So now it's probably one of the most vibrant streets on, in, in downtown. So that kind of stuff I love and just kind of, it's fun to be creative and kind of, you know, 
be places early and kind of see that change. So you bought over a million square feet of office. What do yeah. you think the office opportunity looks like in Florida, whether it's in Tampa or Miami and yeah. what kind of investments are you targeting? Yeah. So, right. So what I'm seeing is, right, especially in like, let's say Miami and Tampa, which are the two, I say primary pockets I've been buying right now. Fundamentals have, for the most part, have been getting better. You've got rents have been going up in Miami. Occupancy has been going up. There's, there's positive fundamental trends happening. And yet pricing is going down. You know, cap rates are going up and, and the cost went down. So now I could buy what I'm, you know, what I'm telling my guys is, you know, cash flow is kind of on sale. So I can buy these well below replacement costs and, you know, at very strong cap rates with upside. So, you know, I guess two very different examples, but, you know, we bought an office building in Tampa and we actually partnered with, with Dev and Nitten. Oh Juan, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, with Merrimack guys. And I'll, and, and I'll tell you one of the reasons why it made sense. Dev was to, just recording actually like Friday. Oh, was he? I'm yeah. actually going to his office yeah. after this to catch up. But yeah, so we ended up doing this one together. And the main reason is it was a 350,000 square foot single story office building. Okay. We bought it at about a 10 cap going in. So, I mean, great cash flow. Now, again, you got a lot of these big kind of back office call center type users that, you know, some of that stuff is going to yeah. go more remote. So there's some risk there, but, you know, we've got some term, but it's sitting on 50 acres of land, like about nine minute drive to downtown Tampa, right off of the highway. So to us, this is an amazing covered land play where you got a 50 acre development site. So obviously Dev and Nitten are really good on, on the land use and entitlement development side. So you know, we're kind of, we kind of found found the opportunity. We're currently working and operating and milking the, the current asset, but long-term, I mean, we have a 50-acre development site that we could, we could do here. So that's one interesting angle. And we paid $90 a foot for the buildings and it was like a 10 cap going in, right? So feels pretty good in this environment. We're also closing this week on an office building in downtown Coral Gables. So again, strong pocket. We, we love what's going on there from leasing velocity perspective. And on that one, we're, we, you know, we're, you know, again, buy, you know, we're buying it well below replacement costs, probably half of what it would cost to build it today. And we're buying it for, you know, that one, we're not getting a 10 cap, but we're getting like a north of a seven cap going in with a lot of, you know, upside in, in where the rents are and where, the, and where the vacancy is. And so buying good things like that, where that building, you know, two years ago, probably would have been trading for 25% more than we're paying for it today. And the fundamentals are better today than they were two years ago. So, you know, when we start seeing things like that, we're, we're definitely um, being selective, but we're seeing value. And then it's just getting them capitalized, which is the hard part. We're going to come to that. <laughs> I want to talk about the 350,000 square foot deal. Yeah. Okay. So it's a potential future covered land play, but it's still got a pencil until you get to a development opportunity. Right. So how does that work? And how are you financing it and how are you capitalizing it to make sure that whoever's in there, whatever tenant, whatever call center, whoever uses a big flat building is going to continue and you're going to at least cash a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is, you know, we don't have a lot of turnover for the first three years. So, so we felt good about the cash flow kind of going in. And for us, we kind of wanted to milk, we're kind of thinking five years, right? Well, let's, let's, let's milk this thing for five years beyond that. Maybe we'll want to start developing. So what we're doing now is we're continuing, you know, we've actually renewed and extended a couple tenants in the building, but we're kind of giving them either five years. We're not really trying to give people more than that at this point, just so we have that flexibility long-term. And then we have like one forty-five thousand square foot vacancy we're actively trying to lease, and you know if we can find a tenant that'll do a five-year deal, we'll do it. Or maybe we plug someone in cheap on a Nasdaq deal, and maybe they take it for a year or two and just kind of keep some cash flow. I mean, right before we closed, we actually had another vacancy in the building, and we ended up locking in FEMA because it was right after Hurricane Ian, 
and they needed a place for a year to two years. We're like, just take the space, go. And yep. they were like, they signed a lease in like two weeks. It was crazy. So, you know, we're just going to continue to kind of keeping it filled like that. But, you know, at our basis, if someone's looking for kind of a quick, cheap kind of office space, I think for the product in this area we're in, we're the lowest game in town. So it allows us to, you know, win deals and keep cash flow because that's really all we're doing until we have a, a bigger development play. All the talking heads, like real estate guys, the know-it-alls are saying, if you are financing it at, I don't know, I'm making up 8% and you're buying it at a seven cap, that doesn't work. So how are you doing a deal in Coral Gables at a seven cap? How did you think about it? How did you structure it? Well, so I think that you bring up a good point. And, and you know, look, it's not always that black and white because if there's enough value at upside, okay, even though there maybe you're technically negative leverage day one, you know, if you think you can get this thing up to a 12 or 13% yield, then it's okay if your debt's 8% in that environment and you bought a seven going in. It's just, but you're, you've kind of, the, cha- the the struggle with that is you've kind of got a little bit of a gun to your head day one because you know you're on the clock because you're kind of on a negative position there. Luckily, on the deals we've done, we've been able to find positive leverage. So like I said, we bought a 10 cap. We ended up getting uh, financing from a bank there. It was low leverage. It was like 55%. And we had a signed recourse. So I mean, one of the big things we have to do right now to get office, office uh, financing is, is banks want, want recourse. Your only alternative is to go to the debt fund guys. But you go to the debt fund guys today because of where you know SOFR is, I mean, you're looking at 10 plus percent rates. So that's not attractive to me. I don't want to buy office with debt fund money right now at these rates. I mean, I, I obviously think there's, there's definitely a, a, a void that they fill. And I obviously, you know, I borrow from debt funds a lot of the time. So I think as, as costs maybe taper in, maybe spreads come in a little, they start to become a little bit more attractive. But for what I'm doing, I'd rather go lower leverage, go with the banks. In some cases, you know, put my balance sheet up, but get, seven and a quarter percent financing on that deal at lower leverage. The one we're, we're doing right now in the Gables that we're closing this week, we got another bank, partial recourse. We're getting about 60% leverage and that's sub 7%. So wow. we're going in at yeah. seven seven 7.3 cap. We actually have positive leverage. So those are pretty good financings and executions in this environment. I'd say, you know, anyone I told I got an office building finance for sub 7% today, they think I'm full of shit. But that's that's kind of what we've been trying to do. And now we've got another big deal that we're, you know, I can't talk too much about because we're not fully under contract yet, but we're about to be. Another really interesting office deal here in Miami. Big boy, it's about a half a million square feet. But on that one, we're actually getting seller financing back. That'll be, call it, in the low sevens. So we're being pretty strategic with how we do this. How are you capitalizing these deals? We're, <laughs> it's not easy. I mean, we're, we're raising high net worth kind of, capital deal by deal. It's just a lot of high net worth family office type money. And it's been a lot of conversations, a lot of meetings. I think the the beauty is I think a lot of these family offices and kind of private high net worth investors, they kind of get the contrarian play right now and under, especially in the markets we're playing in and they kind of believe in our thesis. So we've been fortunate that we've been able to capitalize and execute, but you know, go into the institutions right now. And I've talked to several that even, you know, you go to their websites, they say they pride themselves on being contrarian investors. And I talked to one guy the other day and he just goes, listen, I think your thesis is spot on. I think you're going to make a lot of money on this deal. He's like, but I can't invest in it because my investors will think I'm crazy. And I was like, well, aren't you a contrarian investor? He's like, 
We are, but our investors don't want us investing in office right now. I'm like, you know, so that's kind of what you're dealing with. I know, but I, I'm laughing because that's also tells me, right, if, if even the quote unquote contrarian investors are risk off to office, if someone has to sell an office building right now, it's got to clear at, at a price. So we're on, on the positive end of that by buying today. The counter is obviously if we have some, you know, we have some legacy deals that we're trying to sell, it's not a great time to sell. So, you know, you kind of have to look at it both ways. Yeah. And the other thing is it's hard to raise capital, but you need more capital because you're doing lower leverage. Exactly. Yeah. And your deals with your prior company are probably stuck. You're in this track record thing where investors want to see your track record, but a lot of deals got halted because of COVID, because of interest rates, et cetera. So how are you finding investors? Are they part of your current syndicate? Are they new investors? What's been your strategy? over the past five years raising family office capital? Yeah, look, I, I think it's it's a little both. I mean, I look, I've, I'm always out there kind of meeting new people and finding new investors. So I'd say it's it's been a mix of, you know, a lot of prior investors that, that, that have been investing with me since my Tri-Zero days are still investing with me. But we're also every day building that investor base and bringing in new investors. So we, we definitely got some newer family office and, and, and kind of investors as well alongside. So, you know, I was on a call on the drive up here earlier today with, you know, Two different investors that you know are looking at at our new deal, and you know can write can write decent sized checks, but it's you know with newer investors they got to get comfortable with me and, and and my company and everything we're doing, and so it's it's a little bit of a it's a lot of work, you know you got a, a lot of calls, a lot of hand holding, but you know that's what it takes right now to get deals done. I want to talk about the new company, but before we get there, have you also explored kind of co GPing? where you're going to partner with another group who's in your space and you're both going to leverage your collective experience and capital partners to put a deal together? Well, 100%. I mean, that's that's what we did it with the Matuanis in, in Tampa, right? We kind of used both of our resources there to get that one capitalized. And the same thing with this new one we're doing in uh, the Gables that we're closing this week. We also have a co-GP partner we brought in who actually, he had the relationship with the lender that ended up giving us this great financing. So, you know, he really leaned on his his relationship to get that sub 7% that. So, you know, in a lot of ways right now, uh, you know, having good strategic partners on deals to to get them done, I'm I'm more than happy owning 50% of, you know, several good deals than, you know, owning 100% of nothing that you can't get done, right? So, I'm definitely a fan of the strategic co-GP uh model where it makes sense and where people bring different things to the table. What are the characteristics of a good partner? Oh, I mean, it's a good question. You've seen a lot. I'd say, look, I, I, I'd say maybe I'm not directly answering it, but I'd say the biggest thing is you just want to be careful who you get into bed with, right? And so I've now experienced some bad partnerships. And so on certain deals where we've had some partners that maybe didn't work out as well. And so it's been a learning experience because I remember early on in my career, someone once said to me, I don't remember who, but said a good deal with a bad partner is worse than a bad deal with a good partner. And at the time, I I kind of just like, you know, whatever, didn't think much of it, but it kind of, I guess it's stuck in my head. But now, I, you know, having been through it, I, I appreciate that comment. I agree. Because, you know, if you're in the trenches on a deal, but you got a good partner, you'll fight through, you'll figure it out. Even, you, you know, you still feel good. You can kind of know that you've got something you can call. When you're in a, a deal could be great, but if you're in a bad partnership where, you, you, you know, you got attorneys involved and just, it's just very contentious. It's not fun. It takes all the fun of what we do. And what yep. I and I think what we do is a lot of fun, to yep. be honest. So, you know, I think I think being careful and picking the right partners is definitely important. 
as you were building your new company, what things when you were going through the list of things that you wanted to do and then the things that you didn't want to do, what was on the list of things you didn't want to do now that you kind of got a fresh start to do it again a second time? I mean, it's a good question. And honestly, it's 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 great because that's exactly what I did. I mean, I remember when when I kind of, you know, built Tricera and then when I, I I separated from my partner and I brought some of my guys with me to the new shop, I spent I took a whole su- last summer just really thinking, spending a lot of time just really, what do I want to do this time? How do I want to focus? Obviously, you know, strategy-wise, I still like what we were focused on from a retail office kind of mixed use focus, but I think the big things I wanted to do this time that were different is I want to be a little bit leaner as a company and not necessarily do everything in-house. Property management, which we were building out at Tricera at the time, and Tricera still has a big property management arm. To me, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of personnel. It's a lot of brain damage. And to me, it, it, it takes away my time from focusing on the deals and that you know execution side. And so to me, I think I'd rather find the right good third-party property management companies that I can lean on and leverage off of, but yet focus my team's energy and resources on on deals and deal flow, then tie us up focusing on hiring another property account and then things like that. So I think that's one of the big differences this time around is really trying to just be a little leaner and more kind of a- asset management and hands-on focus from the execution side, but less kind of in the weeds on the property management. It's interesting you say that Sometimes when like a deal gets announced, I'm sure you do it too, and you think it's a cool deal and you haven't really heard of the company, then you like double click onto the company and you see what they're all about. Right. And I was onto this deal in another market and I clicked into the company and I was going through their team to learn more about them, going through their property list. And they had like, you know, two or three properties. And the team, I was like scrolling and scrolling and scrolling through. There's like multiple partners. And I'm thinking to myself, how is there enough money, enough revenue? to support all these people and long-term is that sustainable? And that was an opportunity you had when you were kind of building out your team, trying to figure out who you needed, who you didn't need. And what approach did you take in kind of organizing the team, excluding property management, but based around an investment strategy? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, look, fortunate for me, right? So my CFO from Tricera, who's been, who's with me from day one, first hire at the company, he's, he's, you know, I wouldn't do without him. So when, when I started Toros, he came with me and actually Ari's now the CFO of Toros, but he's also a, a partner in the company. And so he's right. It's like, you know, deal guys when you're out there, like guys like me, we're, we're, we're out there running a million miles an hour in different directions. He kind of keeps me organized and grounded and helps kind of keep everything at home in order. So he's the best. And then, so he came Aaron, who is my director of acquisitions, who also basically the three of us were kind of the guys running all the transactional side of, of these deals came with us too. So we kind of kept our core team together. And then um, we also then later brought on another guy, Jonah, who was also with Tricera on the leasing side. Uh, he he actually left prior to the separation, but then he came back and joined us too. So we kind of brought the team back together and he's really more focused on asset management. Like I said, more hands-on the leasing and execution side. I mean, he's the one really working third-party brokers, but also utilizing his relationships and and mine and our teams to go out there and also find the right concepts, the right tenants and and really double team it to really execute as quickly and efficiently as possible. And so from there, I think we're going to just build the team strategically, but like kind of the core four that we have when we launched is, is kind of hopefully going to be all around for the long haul and we'll kind of grow from there. How do you create 
incentives with that team? Because obviously you've seen it from a more institutional side, a bigger side at Thor. You've done it once in your own company. How are you incentivizing the team? Look, I, I think that's always a tough, a delicate balancing act, right? I mean, you know, and every employee in every situation is a little different, but I think, look, you, uh, I'm a big believer in you want to have your guys aligned and motivated, right? The easiest and best way to do that, right, is to give them some sort of equity participation in the deals, right? Because now they're really aligned, they're really focused on the deals and they have to, you know, they're going to get compensated based on the performance of them. So I, I definitely think that's, one good way to do it. At the same time, though, as the owner of a company, you got to balance that because you can't give away all the equity. And so, you know, how do you give someone that, but also compensate them with salary to live off of? And yep. so I think it's a balancing act. And I, I don't know. I don't know if there's a perfect science. I wish there was, but I think it just depends on the the situation, you know? So when you're starting this company, you have to put the business together. You come up with your strategy. Are you, and you have to start building it back up again. Did you ever think, and maybe you did, taking an investor in the opco, or were you? No, I'm going to do it all myself. We're going to figure out how to generate the cash flow and build it up organically. Yeah, look, that's always the uh, the big question when starting a real estate company, especially because it's so capital intensive. With Tricera initially, right, my former partner and I, we we bootstrapped it together from the beginning. And, and look, I looking back, I think that was the right decision. Obviously, maybe it's a little bit more painful to beginning from a personal level, trying to manage your own, you know, personal finances and, and build a company. But I think that obviously, look, giving up a piece of your company day one, I've always been of the camp that I'm going to regret that one day. And so, you know, if, as you scale, right? So, but how do you scale without the capital? So I think there's it's a tough balancing act, and and there's no right or wrong, right? I, I've I've seen a lot of successful guys who've gone off from a big institutional shop. They got seeded by you know some PE shop who does like these GPC capitals. They own I don't forty percent of their promotes going forward, but they're funding all the overheads. And this guy can sleep at night not having to worry about you know funding the company's payroll tomorrow, right? So that's that's great, and so there's nothing wrong with that. But they also don't have forty percent of the promotes, yeah, every, right? So you know, it, I think it, again it goes back to risk reward, which I think everything we do is based on that, and and, and how much can you stomach and what that looks like. When you left to start the new company, not a, a lot of people, I think, struggle with this. And maybe some people are thinking about it. Some people have done it. What, looking back, would you have changed kind of in that transition or done a little bit differently now that you've seen how it's played out? You've left and started a new firm. Uh, what do you have? I'm not following. So like... There's no playbook, you know, there's right. no like right way to do it. Was there anything, any mistakes that you made or anything that you would have wanted to change in hindsight? Yeah. I mean, look, I think we're learning every day, right? So that's why I look, starting Toros, starting a second time around was a lot easier, right? Because we've already made some of those mistakes and growing pains and kind of know what we did right or what we would do differently and kind of, so the second time was, it felt almost very seamless. Almost like we just turned on the lights, changed jerseys and started going, right? It's awesome. So, and, and because I kept my, my core guys with me too. So it was like, there was no learning curve. Like, how do we underwrite this deal? What, how do you look at the model? Like we all knew what we were doing. So it was like, it was, it was, it was as probably as seamless as it could have been sec for a second time. But yeah, the first time you're learning everything, because you're right, there is no playbook. And, and also, you know, going off on your own from getting a paycheck every day 
it, that's a it's a very scary job, especially right. And people thought I was crazy. You know, I had a, I had a great seat, a great job working at Thor. I mean, Joe was paying me very well. I mean, a lot of people thought I was crazy just walking away from that, right? But I think it's it's also it goes back to you know an internal thing, right? Had, just intrinsically, I knew at some point I needed to do this, right? It's like I just wasn't, I didn't feel fulfilled, you know, because I just I just felt like I got to do it for myself. And so, if you have that in you, right? This, you, you could still be safe and just work for someone, but I don't know if you'll ever, you know, like I felt like if I did that, I'd have a great life, but I don't know if I'd ever truly feel like as happy. And so I, I, right now, like, you know, people say, well, what's it like? I'm like, well, there's, a, it's different stress, right? I was definitely stressed working, working at Thor. I mean, I, I didn't want to you know screw up and, you know, Joe, Joe's obviously, like I said, a great guy, but he's also demanding. Now it's a different stress, right? I've got other people that I'm responsible for and a family, but I wake up and I love it. It just it keeps me going and it keeps me excited. And so I think you just have to, you have to have the right type of stomach to do it though. You're a hundred percent right. I mean, it's the pure definition of an entrepreneur because I'm sure you feel the same way, but when you're talking to, I would say like an institutional guy, like your buddy that you were just talking to at that firm, like he's not investing, but he's not worried about it because he's still getting a paycheck. They still manage a few billion dollars, whatever right. it is. It doesn't matter. You're like, fuck, I got to figure it out no matter what. If it means not doing deals, then I need to figure out how I'm keeping this thing afloat. And it's just, you carry this kind of badge differently than others. And I think people, peers can see that and you get along. I don't know how to explain it, but- I think you're right. It's kind of like, a, there's like this camaraderie around it because you kind of know you're all in it. And it's great. I think it's, it's super rewarding. I want to go back to the deal side because you said part of your competitive edge is the flow and the flow is- you know, the hardest thing, deal flow. How are you sourcing these deals? Are you just waiting for a broker to send you a deal and calling them back or do you have a different strategy? No, I mean, that's really, you know, the opposite of what I like to do, right? I, I hate, you know, I always say like, you're just sitting by the phone waiting for someone to send you a deal that everyone else is looking at. Like, what what, what are you really bringing to the table? Now, with that said, have I bought deals that have been brokered? Yeah, but I also like to like you know focus on areas or markets and then really be strategic and kind of target and try to pick off buildings and like you know I find the neighborhood I like like I think St. Pete was a good example back you know going back five six years ago I don't think one property that was acquired on over you know that portfolio we built with Tricera we 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 bought about a dozen buildings none of them were on the market it was targeted now we sometimes you'll engage like a local broker in the market who knows knows a lot of people and say hey go out and see if you can shake any of these loose for us. So you still have a broker, but it's not like it's a marketed deal. I'd say today though, it's a little different. We're doing that, but I think where the deal flow is going to come from today, right, is it's you get the only people selling are people that have to sell. There's got to be a situation that's forcing a sale or it's coming from the debt. And so, and you're not seeing a lot of the debt stuff yet. It's just, it hasn't really come the way I think everyone thinks it's going to come. Who knows when it'll happen? You know, the banks are holding on or kicking it down the road, but I think it's going to have to flush at some point. So I think right now what I've been doing is I, I'm I'm seeing a lot of broker deals, and then I'm hanging around the hoop. So I'm watching them, I'm tracking them. I'm not chasing them. I know that based on where the pricing guidance is, they're probably not going to trade, and then see what happens. Right? When you have these failed deals, then check back every few months. Hey, what are they thinking? Do they have to sell? Are they more motivated? Is their debt maturing? And and trying to you know, structure deals that way. Sometimes it's better not to get a water deal today and maybe be the second or third guy in line because by that time they're worn down, they're beat up and now they're, you know, they were at a hundred dollars and now they're like, all right, you know, give me 75 and let's just get, move on with our lives. Right. So I'm seeing a lot of that. And that's really where I'm kind of, I think finding the best opportunity today is, is staying close to the brokers. They're, they're definitely 
a great source of deal flow, but but almost like just navigating the process and waiting to see when the right time to strike is. Okay. Well then how do you know what to pay if there's no marketed process, there's no auction process with a competitive counterparty? Are you just underwriting a deal and determining if the outcome looks good at this level? Or do you have some other metric that you're using to figure out what to pay for this thing? You know, I think it's, yeah, we're underwriting it based on, I think, conservatively where we think we can kind of execute. And then based on that, you know, we're, you know, whereas before maybe a good value ideal, you'd be okay earning, I don't know, an 18 IRR on paper, right? Over a three to five year hold, let's just say, right? Today, I'm not doing that deal, right? To me, a deal that looks okay, like a deal that probably three years ago would have been like, oh, this, is, this is not a bad deal. Let's do this deal. I would do that deal. Now it's like, unless it's like, wow, this is a great deal pricing wise, it's not worth it because I think everyone believes there's going to be more opportunities. So uh, all these deals we're looking at now, I mean, uh, we're really pricing to mid 20s IRRs for, you know, cash flowing office buildings, right? So that's where, you know, I think we're trying to be right now is, is it, it's got to be, especially for office, which is still yeah. a risky, yeah. scary asset class. You know, we got to get paid for that risk. And so, yeah, we're pricing to much juicier returns. And so that also gives us more room for error, I guess you could say, because let's say things don't work out perfectly and you do end up, work at, you know, underperforming to an 18, no one's going to be upset with that. But, you know, if you're on the right to an 18, end up with a 12, you can put your money in the bank and earn 5% right now. So, you know, that's the other thing. You're com- kind of competing with a cost of capital now that's gone up from, you know, a couple of years ago where your investors might have been okay earning a much lower yield than they will today because they can take less, they can take no risk and earn 5%. So when you get a deal, let's just say you tie this thing up, you're super pumped about it, you're raising capital. Like, How do you think about adding the magic? How do you think about doing the value add component? Is it coming from some sort of big CapEx spend? Is it re-tenanting? Like, how do you figure out what to do? In these offices, I mean, I think it depends on the deal, but yeah, I think the first is what's missing. What what amenities or or capex do we need to put into the building to kind of make it a desirable building to be in? Right? Do you do you need the gym? Do you need that coffee shop? Do you need what what is do you need? You know, and it could be anything. And I think second to that is then yeah, what do you, how do you lease up the office? I think one thing right now on the office side, especially in the markets we're playing in, where you know the average tenant is not fifty thousand feet, but you know. Two, three, four, five, ten thousand square feet. A lot of those tenants, you need to really be building spec suites. So spec suites is a big thing in office mm-hmm. right now. So you're you're basically building out a an office space for a potential tenant, but you don't know who that tenant is going to be. So you have to build in a way that's flexible enough that it's 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 leasable, and you're also speculatively spending that money, which could be a hundred dollars a foot, before you even have a lease, right? So it's it's kind of a a, 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 you know, a concept that a lot of people can't really get their hands around and it's hard to get banks to even really, you know, give you money for something before they have a lease. So that's something you have to talk to the lenders about ahead of time and, and negotiate it if you can. But at the same time, I think that's one of the aspects on the office side that I think is very valuable, right? Having spaces that are ready to go because these three, four, five thousand square foot tenants who are looking for space or maybe they're in a smaller space and they need bigger space or they're in a bigger space and they need a smaller space, they're not looking out typically a year plus from now. And if they go look for a new space, negotiate a lease, then design the space, get a permit, build it out. I mean, you need a year, you know, every bit of it. So, you know, what the reality is a lot of these tenants aren't looking a year out. They're looking six months out. So they're like, well, okay, we need something that's ready. So if you have spec suites, you're you're not only, I think, going to lease up quicker in these markets that that actually have leasing momentum, but I also think you can get a premium in rents. So I think that's also something that we're, we're very keen on right now. 
from a design standpoint, like I'm always thinking about that hospitality side. What is your spec space looking like today? I think you want it to look as cool and high end as possible without okay spending cool. without spending a lot of money, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think putting in glass is important for the offices because what you know, you could do it one of two ways. You can have exterior offices with glass that bring the light into the middle. Or what you could also do, and a lot of a lot of spaces are doing this is you do interior offices with glass. So they're bringing the natural light, but all the employees now sitting in the cubes outside have have a lot of light coming in too. So I mean, there's a lot of ways you could do it, but I think that's definitely been one that's important. And and also, look, I think having again spaces to to congregate for people to kind of socialize, whether it's in the space or in the, an amenity within the building, is also important. And what about from a leasing standpoint? Uh, is there any weird, quirky things going on with leases? Like people want super short term leases, or they want a lot of flexibility. What is coming up right now in your negotiations? Yeah. It, it, I mean, you're definitely seeing the term going down. So, I mean, whereas before I think, you know, it was almost like, you know, 10 year leases was kind of a normal term for these bigger tenants. I think a lot of them are trying to get that down to seven years now. Right. And I think everyone's trying to get as short of a term as possible, but then there's a balancing act because it's like, well, you know, I'm going to give you less money to build out your space if you're giving me less term. And so there's that kind of give and take. So yeah, I think term, I think in general, tenants are definitely trying to you know, shorten their term if possible. Um, and that's something you got to be okay with, but, you know, within reason. I want to bring it home with like some of your processes because I'm always like my culture, my company sucked. Like in during COVID, it was terrible. We had to totally revamp the culture and fix everything and we did it and now it's great. And we do it by being thoughtful and methodical with certain processes and rituals and being very intentional about things. As you started your company, your small entrepreneurial, what are some of the processes? that you have on a weekly, monthly, or quarterly basis that you don't deviate from? You know, it's a good, I probably could do a better job at that. I'm sure probably most people can, but I'd say we, pro, you know, as we grow, I probably need to be more focused on it. Again, just given this, the, the team that I have, and we all kind of know how we work together. We've been probably a little bit more loose with that than maybe we should be. I'd say that the one big process we have is we have a Monday morning weekly meeting, 8.30 a.m., and you know, before the day gets crazy, and we sit down and we go over deal flow, we go over the portfolio and anything else that's you know pressing items, and make sure everyone's kind of got their marching orders for the week. So that that's the one I think thing that is important that we keep. Outside of that, I mean, look, I'm I have an open door policy. I'm very reachable. We're we're very fluid. So like the the communication flow is just always active and open. We've got a a team WhatsApp chat. You know, we're on email. You know, back and forth. You know, through all times of the day and night. So, you know, we're just, it's, it's all about being kind of, I think, responsive too, but we're definitely probably a little looser than we should be as far as formulating all those things that you're talking about right now. It's easy to get to a point where you're over-optimizing for stuff. I remember we used to have like a ritual investment committee meeting. And I'm like, what do I need to do that? I talk to my investment guy like every 30 minutes. I don't need to, you know, unless we're bringing that in. So we do the Monday morning meeting too. That was yeah. a key insight for us. No, but you're right. I mean, as you grow, it's it's more important. And I think you're right. If you get the processes and, and discipline in now, as you grow, it'll be a lot easier. And and look, this this happened first time when we built the first company with Tricera. And and you know, we probably were playing catch up on some things that we were trying to implement processes as we grew as well. But I it's you know, it's kind of like again, going back to as an entrepreneur, you can only focus on so many things at a time. And so a lot of the process and a lot of that stuff is really 
coming down to Ari. Ari's really kind of the guy and that's trying to keep everyone disciplined and organized and do all that stuff. So I'd say, again, I'm fortunate to have him because he really keeps everyone kind of as a well-oiled machine when I'm kind of out there running around doing what I do. I love it. Yeah. I ask all the guests on the podcast the same closing question, and that is, what is your favorite hotel? You can pick more than one. Like brand or like hotel anywhere hotel, in the world? Like specific hotel, specific place, Ooh. specific hotel. So, okay. This is my favorite. It's probably just because we we love going there. We've been going there since we um, lived in New York. We would take a drive down. But there's a hotel in St. Michael, Maryland called the Inn at Perry Cabin mm-hmm. uh, on the Chesapeake Bay. And just for whatever reason, that's always been our happy place. We love it there. It's just quaint. It's quiet. That little town's beautiful. And it's actually it was actually where Wedding Crashers was filmed. Just fun fact. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. But just love that place. And so we've 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 been going back there for the last I don't know, ten plus years, almost almost annually. So I would probably say that just because it really has a special place in my heart. I love it. Yeah. Amazing. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It was a lot of fun. No, thanks for having me. Hey everyone, it's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice.